everybody, and welcome back to another episode of House Talk Pre-Game. I am your co-host, one half of the super team, Ronnie Ransom. Our other super co-host, Dr. Lauren Pitts, is not going to be with, be with us this week. She is actually finally getting some well-deserved R&R, so shout out to her and her husband. Also, it's her birthday week coming up, so make sure y'all go ahead and send her some pre-birthday love and some shout outs to her, um, you know. Hope she enjoys her vacation and everything. And we'll uh, hope to have her back next week, you know, well rested and, you know, ready to, you know, uh, get back to it. But anyways, I have two uh, great other uh, co-hosts with me today and also one more that's going to be joining us in a few. This morning, we got Juan Milan and we also have Ted Wright. <clears throat> good morning, gentlemen. How are y'all this morning? Outstanding, sir. How about yourself? I'm doing good, good man. Good morning. I'm doing good morning. Good, Blessed man. to be here. Hey, Ted, uh, I ain't gonna lie to you, man. Um, I'm glad I'm talking to you now, but a couple weeks ago, ah, man, I it was rough. I ain't go out there on homecoming, man. I can't even <laughs> lie to you. But when I saw that first quarter score, man, I was just like, man, I need to make sure Ted don't call me. I need to make sure. <laughs> nah, I man, I, I stayed away from you, Ronnie. I know how you was feeling, man. Listen, I don't like to put salt in the wound. Uh, I thought I'd give you a little, little bit of time to, you know, kind of get, get, you know, get a sense of reality. And, uh, but it's all good, brother. Hey, man, you know, well, um, Virginia State, you know, they tried this season. Bowie State tried, you know, Union is killing it this uh, season and everything. You know, they got another tough test today. And then they, we actually play them next week to uh, finish off the season. So right. maybe we can play spoiler and everything, but, you know, we'll see what happens. We have our other uh, guest host here, St. Yika Street. Good morning, sir. Welcome, welcome from the West Coast. How are you this morning? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well, doing well. We appreciate you being back on this week, man. Thank you for um, uh, uh, joining us this morning. Um, how how how's the uh, how's the baby, man? Everything good? How's the family? Ba baby and everybody is good, man. Um, good, you know, good, we, good, we're all good. we're all transitioning through through COVID and and all that fun stuff. So, um, yeah, we're we're in good shape. We're in good spirits. It's, it's good to be in a room full of bald head dudes with facial hair. <laughs> man, I didn't you gentlemen put me to shame. Man, look, I just got I'm just got a little starter growth here. I'm just trying to grow up and be like you gentlemen. Eventually like Ronnie, hopefully. Uh, man, I just I just trimmed this down uh earlier this week a little bit, man. Now he bragging. Now he bragging. Now he bragging. <laughs> <laughs> he doing a humble brag. <laughs> man, man. Well look. I really appreciate y'all joining me this morning and holding it down while Dr. Pitts is out this week. We got a really, really great topic today to talk about. And I really appreciate all of you all being on here because I think all of you all have great insight and can add great perspective to this conversation. We're talking about self-acceptance or self-rejection this morning. So what does every athlete have in common normally? You know, they all dream about the successes they, they will have in their career. However, a sports career will always be accompanied with setbacks, and one of the major obstacles an athlete will most certainly come across in some form of, is some form of rejection. Rejection can be experienced in many forms, <clears throat> be it not being picked on a team, being cut from a team, or being unable to get any playing time. So we're going to be talking about some things that athletes can do to mentally deal with rejection in a positive way and how to also, you know, work with self-acceptance through rejection. So I'm really excited about this topic because we see this a lot you know, whether it's the high school level, collegiate level, or eventually the professional level, you know, I think all of us as former student athletes at one point or another, you know, had dreams of being, you know, a professional, a professional athlete at one point or another. And we know 
typically, you know, by the time we get to, you know, the collegiate uh, level, you know, whether or not a coach tells us or a scout tells us, you know, we can be honest with ourselves, you know, you know, really quickly about, am I going to go pro or, you know, I think, you know, I'm going to have to, you know, hang it up after this. So, you know, but dealing with, you know, self-rejection or even self-acceptance and also, you know, dealing with rejection from a coach or, you know, if you're a professional from, you know, a team organization and stuff like that, some people can process that and, you know, accept it. Other people, you know, really have a hard time with dealing with that transition. So, you know, we can definitely share some of that uh, insight that we all have, you know, dealing with that in our own aspects and everything. So really excited about getting into that. Um, before we get started on that topic, I did want to share a uh, mental health tip of the week um, for our listeners out there. And, you know, I'm really big on affirmations. You know, I always talk about, you know, people, you know, do they know their love languages and stuff like that? And one of my love languages is, you know, words of affirmation and everything. I'm really big on words because, you know, words really, you know, I always tell people words can, you know, cut like a sword or they can really make somebody, you know, forget about all their pain and everything. So I'm really big on words and everything and also how we talk to ourselves, you know, our brains don't know the difference between a joke and when we're being serious. You know, our brain just hears what we say and takes it for what it is at face value. So, you know, we have to be really careful about how we talk about ourselves, whether we're going through good times or bad times. So just some uh, affirmations that I want to share with our listeners this morning. Uh, number one, you know, I am capable of turning my life around. Change starts with me and it's as simple as making the decision. You know, I am fully prepared to succeed in all opportunities and environments I'm presented with this month. I'm living in a past prayer. I choose to practice gratitude for all that I do have. And I'm a black man who brings value to the world and the people around me. You know, I really, you know, I always tell people, you know, good and bad things happen to everybody you know, no matter who you are, you can be the most successful person in the world or feel like, you know, the world just absolutely hates you, but good and bad things happen to everybody, you know, and I always tell people it's, you know, understanding that all those moments are like waves, they come and go, you know, being able to enjoy the moment for what it is, knowing that it's not going to last forever, but also being able to endure and be resilient through bad times, knowing that that moment also won't last forever. And I always feel like, you know, positive affirmations and words of affirmations can really be helpful along that journey. Because if you don't believe it in yourself, nobody else around you can make you believe it for yourself. So, you know, I hope those uh, positive affirmations, you know, touched somebody this morning or, you know, gave somebody a great start to this Saturday morning and everything. So, yeah. Did any of you all gentlemen want to share a, a mental health tip of this week or something that somebody can carry into the next week, you know, to just really reflect on and, and hang on into their spirit? <clears throat> Yes, I'll, I'll tap into this, and it's very simple. What I what I always want individuals to leave with is to understand that there's nothing wrong with them, right? That there's nothing wrong with them, and there's this there's this infinite intelligence working through them, and once they understand the system of their life force and intelligence running through them, they they really understand and grasp that there's nothing. They're not broken, so you are not broken right because a lot of times we like to medicalize feelings and this is what a lot of what the healthcare has done right medicalize feelings right whether you're experiencing depression sadness grief we step into the medicalization of those things and you feel like you're broken or something needs to be fixed and this shouldn't be happening when it's an exact process of the system at play so there's nothing wrong with you you are not broken that is my that is my overarching message. Hey, Ron, to uh, Juan's point, I, I think that's 
that's a great uh, perspective. I think a lot of people put uh, undue weight on themselves. So in line with what Juan said, um, you know, I'm always going to go the, the, to that book, man. And, and the, uh, the book says you are uniquely and wonderfully made by him. So whatever your circumstances and who you think or what you think are not how he sees you. So even in your downside, your upside, there's always something working for your good. So I'm always at a mindset that I have to just understand that I, what am I learning here in this moment and how I process that and what I do in the next steps matter. And so if we can, if we can just continue to move forward, no matter whether it's good or bad, I think that um, we learn something in the process and our, our bad times sometimes are not for us. It's for us to learn something that will be shared with someone else who's going through the same thing that may not have the strength and fortitude that you have to go through it right now. Thank you for sharing that, Ted. Thank you. Did you have anything you want to share this morning? I'm downloading uh, what these two gentlemen so beautifully <laughs> stated. So um, I do. And uh, first of all, I appreciate uh, Juan and, and Ted. It's good to meet you for the first time again. And uh, it was a real, it's, it's, you know, the idea of rejection is really powerful. Um, it, it comes from one of the, uh, I, I teach around, one of the foundational things that I teach as a, as a coach working with men is around core wounds. And there's five core wounds, right? So there are, so there's rejection, abandonment, humiliation, betrayal, and injustice. Right, so those are the five core wounds. You, uh, you're talking too fast. I was trying to write. I don't write as fast. You got to repeat. <laughs> Say it a little slower for brothers who's taking notes. So it's, it's uh, rejection, mm -hmm. aban abandonment, mm -hmm. humiliation, mm -hmm. betrayal, mm -hmm. and injustice. Mm -hmm. What was the last one? Injustice. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. For sure. And generally, it's interesting because um, I experienced this. Me and my my wife are experiencing like we all we all we all internalize the way that we view the world through our through a form of wounding from the time that we're between the ages of zero and eight. And so we we develop this meaning of the world, like the way that we view the world through a certain lens, right? And so many of us are not 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 aware of the reality that many of us are walking around with a certain type of wounding. And so we and so when we experience rejection, we personalize it and we make it about um, we we make it a, ma a matter of fact thing. I'm being rejected, and the first thing I tell people is that you are not being rejected. You feel rejected. You're not being rejected. There's a difference, right? And so, so if, if I am, if I am, if someone is rejecting me, if then I've, I've, all, I've all, all of a sudden I've made it personal. I've made it um, an attack on me, um, and I've made it a concrete reality about the world that I live in. But if I feel rejected, then I can explore where that feeling is coming from. I can explore why that feeling exists and I can explore the reality that's around me that I feel is creating help, help contributing to this feeling of rejection so that I don't, so that, because, because like Francis said, if I go to you and you say, and I say, um, Ted, you want to be a, a part of my, um, uh, my new show. And then you say, no. And I go, you know what? I just got rejected by Ted. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I got rejected by Ted. Ted just rejected me, right? Did, did you just reject me or did you just take a sovereign stand for what it was that you felt was necessary for you, right? And then did I internalize it as rejection? Yes. Right? Because if I internalize it as rejection, then the, the question then would be, well, am I willing enough and courageous enough to explore with you, Ted, to say, um, why are you a no? Because that's the part where people, rejection makes you tune out. Rejection turns you the opposite direction. Rejection makes you not curious. Rejection makes you believe that that's a concrete reality. Ted said, no, I'm out. Ted doesn't want to be a part of anything that I'm doing. There's no way Ted, black men don't want to be a part of my life. Every man that I've made in my life is wrong. Nobody's going to support me for anything that I'm doing. All that's where that's how rejection shows up. Mm -hmm. It goes deep. It goes it deep. Goes super deep. Right. And so if I don't catch the narrative um, in, in, in that context, right? Mm -hmm. If I don't catch that it's a feeling, that a meaning that I am making about my interaction with Ted, mm -hmm. and then shift into curiosity of why I feel that way, and then possibly why Ted could have taken the stand that he took. Then, I could, then we can be in an exploration about how to co-create, how to collaborate, and how to come to some new, some different type of form of agreement. You know, but what happens is that when we when we experience the sting of rejection, we're not aware of how that ingrained response, that conditioned response to trauma, is internalized from the ages of zero and eight, and then you're just going around through your life. Every time you, somebody says no, you feel like you're rejected. You feel like you're abandoned. You feel like nobody is, nobody loves you. You're not worthy of love. You're not worthy of any of the things, you know what I'm saying? So there's something wrong with me, right? Mm -hmm. Going back to Moss point. So that's my, that's, that's the foundational place that I start from when it comes to things like rejection and abandonment. And just FYI, uh, we carry two of those wounds primarily. My two wounds are rejection and abandonment. So when I, when someone tells me no, my physiology feels like I am devastation. It immediately feels like devastation. I've done so much work to reprime myself to realize that it's only a feeling that I am not my feelings. And then I get to shift into curiosity around what it is that I'm really experiencing in that moment. I'm glad you said that, man. And, and, and thank you for sharing that, man. And I, I love the way we kicked off this conversation. Mm -hmm. And thank you, uh, Juan and Ted, for also sharing your insight. I appreciate all of you all for that. Um, saying you could kind of piggyback off what you said real quick at the end. Um, one of the things I always try to, you know, talk to people is about is, you know, our feelings are not facts. You know, our mind doesn't always work in our best, be in our best interest at times. And that's okay. You know, our mind is a neutral thing. You know, we can, our mind is a muscle that we can train just like we do the, the rest of the muscles in our body. And I always try to tell people just because you have a thought that triggers a feeling does not give you the right or need, means you need to act on that. Sometimes feelings just need to pass by. And that comes with self-awareness. And, you know, like you said, not rejecting and automatically internalizing that, oh, I'm not worthy enough or I'm not competent enough for this person to be a part of something I'm trying to do. It's something right. wrong with me, something I must not be good at or something they feel a certain way about. It's about me, me, me. And we see so many people do that. We see so many wounded adults internalize certain things. And in the concept of talking about self-rejection and self-acceptance, you know, we look at athletes who, you know, experience this. I, you know, I'll share, you know, just a little bit of, of my background and the first time I ever experienced, you know, rejection in sports. <clears throat> um, you know, not to, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn or anything, but when I was in high school, at my high school, it was clear that I was one of the top linemen that were in that school, you know. Um, I, you know, I prided myself on being the best athlete I could be. And going into my sophomore year, 
you know, now mind you, as a sophomore, I was 6'1", 285. You know, I was not a small kid at all. You know, my parents' grocery bill back in 08 and 09, um, <laughs> you know, or they, they experienced their own inflation with me. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm kind of getting that on the back end now with my son. So I know I'm really going to feel that. But, you know, I was not a small kid in the slightest. But one of the first things that I always talk to athletes about in sports is, you know, when, you know, sports has become such a business now that it really starts as early as eighth and ninth grade. And unfortunately, one of the things that a lot of college sports do is they create a cookie cutter system for what they want their ideal athlete to look like. You know, for example, at the Division One level, and I always tell people, the biggest difference between a Division One football team and a Division Two football team is their lineman. You can, mm-hmm. fast is fast. You can be a D3 running back and run a 4-2-8-40, and you could be at Arkansas, you can be at Arkansas Tech. A 4-2-8 is a 4-2-8. You can't coach that. You can't teach that. You just have that. What you also can't teach a coach is a 6'6", 295, 300-pound stud who, you know, just, I mean, they just, you can't coach or teach that either. So, but at Division One level, that's kind of their cookie-cutter system. We want the biggest, tallest, leanest lineman that we can find. Well, mm-hmm. I have the size. I have the weight. I have the muscle capacity. I have the technique. I simply did not have the height. So, one of my first instances of dealing with rejection in sports was when my high school to- high school head coach told me my sophomore year, he looked at me and my mom in the face and was like, hey, look, you're one of our best linemen, you're one of the best linemen in the district, can't deny that. However, you will not go D1. And I'm just like, you know, I'm a 15-year-old kid and I'm looking like, uh, <clears throat> come again, like that doesn't make sense. One of the best in the district not going to go D1. Not to say that that correlates at all, but, you know, to just automatically sit there and say, yeah, you're good. You have upside, but you won't go D1. You may go D2, but realistically, with your size and height, you might go D3. At 15, that's a lot to kind of, you know, like, well, what do you mean? Like, I mean, I'm a big kid. Like, I'm one of the biggest people in the school. Like, I'm 15. Teachers think I'm, you know, 25, 30. Like, you know, I, this, I kid y'all not, this beard I have now, I'm sorry, Ted. I'm not trying to brag. I promise you. <laughs> but Ted, I had this in high school, man. Like I really was 14, 15 years old walking around looking like a grown man. Like, mm. so at 15, to really try to understand that my coach is telling me that all this hard work that I'm putting into this point, all the extra hours outside of practice in the off season and stuff that I've done up until this point, me trying to go to UVA or Virginia Tech or hell, even, you know, University of Richmond or William and Mary, I'm wasting my time even trying to entertain that. So, you know, from that moment on, I made it my mission to prove him wrong. You know, like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to go D1. And, you know, by my junior year, I had D1 interest. And, you know, then I started to experience the rejection from D1 coaches. You know, the eye in the sky doesn't lie. But certain angles can make you look a certain height and everything, too. I will say that. So, you know... On paper, I'm saying, you know, I'm like 6'2", 6'3", you know, like, hey, you know, come look at your boy. But then they pull up in person. And I'll never forget it. I was being recruited by the University of Ohio. And I can't think of the O-line coach's name. But he flew into um, Virginia and everything because he had a couple other kids he was looking at. And he stopped by my school. Coach came and got me and everything. The O-line coach himself was about 6'6". And I remember walking into the gym and seeing him. And I was like, 
yeah, he about to leave. Like he ain't, and you know, so I walk, went up to him like, hey coach, how you doing? He was like, hey, how you doing? Are you Ronnie? I was like, yes, sir. He looked me up and down real quick and was like, man, you know, I just wanted to come in and see, you know, put a face to the film and everything. And, you know, just wanted to get a chance to talk to you real quick. That conversation lasted 45 seconds and I ain't talked to him since, you know? And so I had, at, at an early age, I had to deal with the reality of that, you know, because of something that I could not control, you know, even though that I had the talent, I had the ability, the technique, because of something that I could not control my height, I had to deal with rejection in a way of, do I allow these, you know, certain perspectives to make me throw away my entire football career, something I worked for? I had to rechange my purpose. I, early on, I was like, okay, professional leagues might not be it, or it might just be a little bit harder to get to. However, going the route that I wanted to so bad didn't work in my favor, but I, I, I ended up being able to create another route that could have worked in my favor by going D2 and showing out, being, you know, All-American and everything at the D2 level. You know, unfortunately, injuries kind of, you know, really robbed me of that. And for a while, I also rejected myself in that instance because, you know, regret always kicks in when, you know, you feel like you've lost the opportunity. You know, well, if I'd have done this or maybe if I would have, you know, stayed after practice a little bit longer, maybe if I ran a couple extra hills or maybe if I'd have stretched a little bit more, maybe I wouldn't have had this injury, X, Y, and Z. You know, once again, like Sanika said, if you allow your mind to take a thought and kind of let it snowball into a whole bunch of other thoughts that end up leading to, you know, the subconscious thought of I'm not worthy or I'm not competent enough. You can really allow yourself to not only reject yourself, but sabotage yourself because anytime another opportunity comes up, if you haven't dealt with that rejection in the past, if you haven't dealt with being able to accept that it didn't go your way, I always tell people, you can do everything the right way. You can say the right things, do the right things, prepare the right way, you can do absolutely everything ideally, and that does not guarantee it'll go your way. And for some people, that is a very hard you know, lesson to accept. But if you do not accept it, you, will, you can easily allow yourself to reject yourself and look at you and be like, it's something I did wrong. It's something that I'm not good enough at. And if I'm not good enough at this, the thing I wanted to most, well, how the hell will anything else ever suffice me feeling satisfied or feeling complete or feeling like, you know, I love this person that I am. If I can't change this, if I can't control that, how can I ever control something that I really want? That anxiety starts to kick in, that self-doubt, that self-sabotaging. And we see how this really snowballs. So I'm gonna stop talking and I'm gonna let you all chime in. I just gotta say that's the truth. I'm good, that's it. I just wanted to say that. That's the truth. That's the Get truth. Out. I mean, you <laughs> you really hit on some great points, uh, Ronnie. It's it's um, if you're not self aware, man, it, it'll take you down a spiraling course, and not only affect this just the aspect of your life with sports. Mm -hmm. Think about when you go for your first job, when you've already been rejected in sports, you couldn't make mm -hmm. it to the league. Now you have to go out and get a work, get work. So now you've accepted the fact that that's not going to work, and I'm going to move forward. Right. But you're expecting that. Hey, now everybody's going to say yes to me because it's my next step. I have my degree, all these other things. But then you're still in a pool of people who still are evaluating you, just not on an athletic level. Now they're evaluating you against people uh, that they may want to hire to work for their company. So it's never going to go away. But if you haven't accepted it at the athletic level uh, and understood how to process that, it could just continuously, continuously influence the rest of your life and the decisions that you make as you go forward as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, most definitely.
I would, I would, with Ronnie, thank you for sharing that story. Because when you talked about that rejection as like a 15 year old, right? And there's a, an, an example where this rejection, where it, it, it can be adaptive at one point in the timeline and then becomes maladaptive later on. Right? Absolutely. So it could, you could have taken that and spiraled into a depressive feeling, right? Or just mm -hmm. grief and stopped. Or you could have took that and that chip on your shoulder and be like, no, I'm going I'm to I'm show them. And you went on to the next level. Now, right. that's something where a lot of times where we experience, so like Sanika, my brother Sanika was talking about, we, we take these things earlier on, early on in our, in our lives. Mm -hmm. And they're an adaptive response, right? right? They become adaptive and we create a personality around them. Mm -hmm. And what happens is with that chip on our shoulder, we continue to work through that and we have these achievements because of that said personality because of that self-rejection i work harder i'm not enough i'm going to i'm going to over i'm going to overachieve i'm going to overachieve mm -hmm. and it's it begins to become the the foundation of who we believe we are which is not who we actually are at and at some point it's going to come crashing down but that self, that rejection leads to, <laughs> am I rejecting myself now, right? right. Where, this, where this feeling of rejection, I internalize that and I believe that now I am rejecting myself. And as I'm rejecting myself and I'm going through these phases of life and I'm being successful, mm -hmm. it's not sustainable, right. right? Because what happens when we create a personality is during, during that time, is that we give up authenticity for connection. Mm -hmm. So that authenticity drops, but that connection keeps on going because we're human beings and we have this life essence and we're here to connect, we're here to expand. So that continues to go, to go, to go. And it, and it works, right? right? That's, that's the incident, like it works. Like the, this personality, the, the ego continues to work until it stops working, until yep. it no longer becomes sustainable and you run into a wall and that wall is telling you now this adaptive response can't, can't make it in a relationship that you're trying to build, right? Yeah. It can't make it as you're fathering, as you're being a father. It can't make it as you're being a partner. It can't make it as you're being a mentor, right? Without crippling other things around you. Yeah. So now that authenticity, where we're calling back for that authenticity, we're calling back for that from self-rejection to self-acceptance and how can I accept this part of who I am, the real essence of who I am. And it's like that thin, that thin line, that, that, but deep distinction where we start stepping into our truest version, our truest acceptance of ourselves. Right. But that's right. one of those things that hold on because when a lot of, when we, when we look, a lot of our personality has been developed through our pain. Yep. And once we're, once, once we're able to start dissolving that pain, it feels like we're losing our identity. Exactly. I want to. I want to speak to this real quick. I pulled up. I was pulling up some uh, some references, and um, one thing I want to do is that just for the for the audience's purposes, I want to provide a reference for what rejection uh, for as a definition of rejection. All right. So, uh, in the field of mental health care, rejection most frequently refers to the feelings of shame, sadness, or grief. People feel when they are not accepted by others. 
I'll read it again. The field of mental health care rejection most frequently refers to the feelings of shame, sadness, or grief that people feel when they are not accepted by others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So a couple that's things good. I wanted to speak. What were you going to say? What was that said? I said, that's good. That's a great definition. Thank you. For sure. Absolutely. Well, it's not mine. So no, no, no. <laughs> I got to thank you bring, bring it to the, the audience's attention so they can at least put some framework around when we use the word rejection, what we what we're kind of referring to. So thank you. Right. Absolutely, Definitely. man. So I, I wanted to just speak to a couple of things. So uh I work I work primarily with men. Right. I, I help men step into you know what we like to call true masculine leadership. Um, to, so they can save their marriage, be the leader in their family, and, and really step up in terms of how they lead in their home and their life and their business. Um, one of the things that that shame, the way that, so so here's the idea. So Ted, we'll go back to that example I was using it before. Mm -hmm. I asked Ted to be a part of my project. <laughs> Ted says no, All right? as a result of not being aware of just my genetic wiring, right? My wiring as a human on this planet living in society, I internalized Ted's no as, um, as rejection. I personalize the rejection and I make the rejection say to me, going back to Juan's point that I, that something is wrong with me. So I go, something is wrong with me because Ted said no to this overture that I provided. So now I feel, so now I feel shame because of the fact that I feel unworthy, right? I feel shame because I feel unworthy because Seth said no, and that no has been a narrative. Going back to one of the things that you had talked about before, um, Ronnie, is that that narrative has been playing over in my head for, the, for my entire life. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's some of the psychological, like that's just a, a, one of the loops that, right, that's been going on. And Ted, you pointed this, like that narrative just goes on and on and on inside your head. The, the, so then the, the so one of the things about shame is that um, the, the way the shame internalizes itself, especially with men, is that shame comes up when basically as a, um, a desire to not feel weak. We don't want to feel weak. Mm -hmm. Whenever men feel any of the four, the, the, the eyes, they feel incompetent, incapable, impotent, right? Right. When we feel, when we feel we are not able to rise to when we feel that you tell me no I say oh you know what I'm saying like you know there's no there's no way that I, I should get that no there's no way that I deserve that no so then I internalize it I personalize it and I make it about me and then I feel shame because I feel that um that I can't accomplish my objectives I can't accomplish I can't reach my dreams mm -hmm. right and so the so the, the the first the first thing that I would like to approach in this is that is that Again, we talked about the idea that, the, that rejection is a feeling and we have to understand that it is a feeling and not a reality. Right. All right. Your no is a sovereign choice. You get to say no. But if I go up to a woman and I ask that woman for her number or ask that woman for her for her love and she says no, that's a sovereign choice. But she gets to say no. Right. And so then after the no is when your leadership kicks in. That's when people know whether or not you have stepped, you have done your leadership work. Because when that no turns up, you default to your childhood programming. That's where the default mechanism comes in. 
that's where the that's where the conditioned response to trauma comes in. That's where fight, flight, freeze, the peace comes in. It comes in at that moment after the no. After the no. So when Ted says no, and I go, no, what are you talking about? What's happening? All this, that's where it comes up. And then when in that moment, you lose the trust. Right. Because they can't rely on your leadership. Because you haven't done the work. Because you haven't stepped up to realize that after the no is when they look at you to see if you're really, if you're really operating and sovereign and safe even in yourself. So if you have not done the work, they know as soon as somebody says no to you, they know how you respond. You default, you wilt, you fold, you bend, you break, you go on your knees. That's where they know after that no. And so your work in this moment is that rejection comes in different ways because we internalize it, we feel it. We Everyone will feel rejection in some way, shape or form or point. And so the opportunity in this moment is for us to realize that after that no comes, the condition response comes, is how will you respond when that no comes in? Yeah. That's wow. where they know. When you're having an argument with your wife and she says something and she, <laughs> and, she, and she says no or she pushes back or whatever like that, and you and that moment is when your leadership kicks in. Mm-hmm. That's the moment. So that's the moment I feel like we get to rise into. So come understanding that the feeling is a rejection and then shifting into your leadership after that moment. That, that's the magic moment. Man, that listen, it, I don't care. The listenership, this this needs to go viral. What you just said, man, can help some people right now because Absolutely. it's it's in the moment when people cry. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's a character issue. And, yeah. and you're speaking to uh what do you do when the situation is in front of you? It's not about what you read, how many times you practiced it. It's about what you do in that moment. And you're absolutely right because people are watching and absolutely. how you respond matters. And when you respond with leadership and not be personal with it, you can accept a no and say, I understand. We still friends. Let's go out and get something to eat. What's going on in your world? And you never know why the person said no. They they may not want to talk about it, but it could be simply just the scenario you're using with me. Maybe it already told me the timeline of what you wanted me to work on your project, but I already knew I had something to do and I couldn't commit to it. So without explaining it, I just said no, not because I wouldn't want to, it's just that the timeline doesn't work up work out for me. But if yeah. you take it and run with that thought that Ted would never want to work with me on anything else, you'll never ask and you miss your, your blessing because it could be a right season and time for us to work together. But if you locked yourself into that person and you pull them away, now you miss out. So I, I love your point, man. Yeah. Thank you for rounding that out because the throwing away is where we lose the magic. Yep. We throw people away. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to say this real quick and I, I just want to speak to this real quick because I'm going to write a post talking about canceling uh, Kanye. And I decided I'm not going to cancel Kanye. And the reason why is, first of all, just for the record, George Floyd died at the hands of a police officer kneeling on the back of his neck. That is the fact, right? Um, he did not die from some random, uh, whatever he, you know, hypothesized in that conversation. Um, uh, uh, but many of the things that Kanye says, and then it brings up this whole vitriol around Kanye. And this is the rejection thing, right? 
And so one of the things that happens is people go, I'm going to cancel Kanye. I'm going to get rid of him. Right. And so what, here's what that does. This is what, this is what it secretly does. I'm going to tell you what it secretly does. What it secretly does is it avoids confrontation. Mm-hmm. It avoids confrontation. Cause here's the thing. I don't want to cancel him because I'd rather just look at him and tell him that I'm disappointed in him. And the same thing with you, Ted, I would, I would, instead of be like, instead of being like, you know what, I'm going to get rid of Ted. I'm just going to tell you that I'm disappointed. And if we're open to exploring why I'm disappointed and why you made your sovereign choice, that's where we get to create. That's where the bridges get to create. Yeah. I get to experience you. You get to have your sovereign choice. I get to have my sovereign choice, but let's not throw each other away in that moment. I hold space for for the transformation of every human being on this planet when the time is right. And at the same time, I'm not putting up with your fucking bullshit. Mm-hmm. Right. But I will challenge you on your bullshit directly. I won't, I won't walk away from you. I won't avoid you. I won't abandon you in the process when you may be at the, cause here's the thing. When you are at that moment, if I reject you, if I throw you away, if I throw you away, that may, I may have been robbing you of the medicine that you needed. Yeah. And you honestly, at the foundation level, Ted, the only thing that you may have needed was just my love. Yep. yep. And honestly, also, you also reaffirm it in their mind, possibly the negative automatic thought they have about themselves. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, because sometimes people will test you just to see if you prove them right. Mm-hmm. And some people are willing there's no end to how long somebody is willing to test you because they don't believe goodness is worthy of them. Yeah. So if you present me an opportunity that I don't think I'm worthy enough and I respond or I, re- or I reject it in a way that makes you feel a certain way and you get triggered by my emotional response, now you have two emotional triggered people attacking each other as opposed to the issue. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And how many times do we see that? And to, your, uh, to also add to what you said, Sanyika, um, earlier, you know, oftentimes when people are uh, conditioned to be in self-preservation mode, or in other words, being able to be a version of themselves that can survive certain situations, you know, we can survive a day, we can survive a week, a month, or maybe years on end and everything. But eventually that act of self-preservation oftentimes always works against you. Because what happens is when you're always in the mind of self-preservation, you all you initially immediately isolate yourself from any possible help or resources because your inability to trust or your inability to think that you can be vulnerable with somebody else in act of being a self-preservation. And to kind of add a clinical spin to it, one of the things I try to get my, especially my teenage boys to understand, because I can't remember who made the quote, but I'm pretty sure one of you intelligent men know it, but it basically says, you know, it's easier to repair a, a wounded kid than it is a broken man, you know? And I wholeheartedly believe that because you know, just as a therapist, being able to work, you know, work with adults and see how when you don't address those childhood traumas and it's not no, and I hear a lot of therapists and I hear a lot of, you know, clinicians and mental health advocates always say, you know, it's about addressing the wounded child and everything. And yes, you know, I, I wholeheartedly believe in, in, in addressing the wounded child, but before you can get to the wounded child, you gotta, you gotta stand on ground with the teenager who came, became the first person to save that wounded child. You know, I always tell, always tell adults, kids can f- figure out stuff from jump really, really early. They might not know how to process it. They might not know how to express it, but they can internalize and really understand what's going on around them. And they also realize at a very early age, too, that I'm helpless in my situation. You know, I didn't ask to be raised in a certain environment, be brought up in a certain environment around certain family members and things like that. 
but however, here I am. And so what you've given me the task of doing is if you can't show me how to survive in this world, and if you can't even show me how to prepare to become an adult and deal with the ebbs and flows of being an adult, the good moments, the bad moments, the moments of accepting yourself and also the moments of dealing with rejection that we all deal with as adults. If, if your adults in your environment can't help you with that as a child, what happens is you become a teenager who has to figure it out for themselves. And what do we know about when somebody is wounded and traumatized? It's not about doing what's best in the long term. It's about self-preservation in that moment. I have to get through this moment by any means necessary. And that doesn't always end up in using adaptive methods or something that's going to be beneficial. It's all about self-preservation. So I appreciate all you all's points on that because <clears throat> one of the things I always like to talk to my athletes about, it's not wins and losses, it's wins and lessons. You know, how many times have you all had a coach that would wring your necks after a win, but was actually compassionate after a loss? You know, what more, what good would it be to yell at you and reject you all as a team? You know, when we lost, we've already lost. Me yelling at you post game or yell at you after film, like the damage has already been done. I can't go back and fix the game now just because we watched the film. Yeah, if we ever get a chance for that team again, but guess what? That won't be the same team we play again. That team will be different. That team will have different experiences and everything. So we can't sit there and say, oh, we watched film on this team. We can go back and get it right. No, you can take the lessons from that moment, the lessons from those situations. And if you find yourself in a situation similar to that again, you have that moment and choice right then to do different and different might be work better in your favor. You know, but... Hey, Ryan, just to put a pin in that thought right there, um, from a coach's perspective, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes coaches even don't act properly as men and respond in anger. Exactly. And emotion in a situation because of a loss. They're thinking about the the, the big-term effects of my career, um, yep. wins and losses and all those things, and they're projecting that on, on young men who are impressionable. And so... And and that, and, that part is, and that part is difficult because that's when the business side comes out of it. Because yep. like you said, now you have this grown man who on the back end, he got to put food on his table. Mm -hmm. He got to feed his family. He got to protect and provide for his family. But he's hinging that on the backs of teenagers, of young adults, yep. of men who we know phys physiologically, your brain is not fully developed until you're 25. You won't have that man in your locker room at 25. You got him at 18 or 18. <laughs> <laughs> and look, Ted, Ted, just to your point, I want to, I'm going to extrapolate on this because I think this is really powerful. Just for, and those men in big bodies are still, are still, are still in the developmental process. Yeah. Right. I was still in the developmental process, even though they got big bodies and and whatever it is, you know, facial hair and all the deep voices and all that other kind of stuff like that. They're still developing. But but Ted, to, I wanted, I wanted that, like. So in that context of that at the athlete coach relationship, right? I've had some tumultuous coach coaching relationships for sure. And um and in those moments where you feel like a coach is like projecting anger, I think this but to me, the, the in that in, in the, these instances, um the default is like, why is the team not performing at the, the level that it at it possibly could? Um it's always leadership. So what message would you have to coaches to help them to be in the awareness of when they are projecting anger versus uh, sort of challenging, mm -hmm. holding accountable and inspiring the team? I think personally, uh, as long as you're not making it personal toward the player and you're talking about him as a human being or an individual or what he could become. Now, if you're... a uh, 
showing them a specific error in their particular technique or something that they didn't do properly. I, I get that. You can be stern about those things, but sometimes the language that we use, uh, it, it's fervor in there that's beyond coaching or, or teaching and trying to build people up. It actually could be tearing them down. I mean, I go to some youth games now, and if you look at the way the coaches talk to some of these young kids who are like seven, eight years old wearing a flag, they're not even in equipment yet. And it's like these guys have these young kids. If I win this 8U championship, it's my next stage to go to coach at AAU traveling team or whatever it is. And parents are watching this stuff. I'm hearing that the, the words. And so what are you saying to these kids at that age? To them, it's just a game. Right. I'm just having fun. I don't care. I'm not serious about this. And so sometimes we, we put too much on the kids, I think, sometimes and take away the fun part of it, that it is a game and look at it as a way to teach life lessons for young men on, on things that have helped them beyond sports. I think that's the thing, dude, the life lessons part. After this call that we're on, I'm on my way to announce an 11U uh, Junior All-American football game, mm-hmm. and, um, and which, is, which my son is playing in. And the idea in this moment is, you know, and I've seen it, I've seen the teams, you know, and that, and that, that coach on the sideline, he is, first of all, it's attention seeking behavior. Number one, mm-hmm. attention seeking behavior. And so when that coach is erupting on the sideline, he's trying to model what he thinks he has seen that was effective from other coaches that he has oh. witnessed. Oh yeah. Oh man. God. Right. How many times do we see that? Yeah. For sure. But you know, Ron, you know, Ted, I don't know what your athletic history is, but the, mm-hmm. the, the, I play I play basketball at UMES. And the and the thing is is that I've seen coaches who who do that. They model that. It's attention seeking behavior. Mm-hmm. They don't understand how to inspire. They don't understand what challenge really looks like. Men need to be challenged, but not the way you think. That's right. Yeah. Not right. out of fear. Not a, you should you should lead out of respect, not out of fear. That's the thing, right? And Out of respect, what, what are the other components of that? Because I want to make sure that that's aware for people that watch it. So, 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 go, what would you say to that, Ronnie? Like respect, respect, trust. You know, direct. I give you, I give you a great example. My um, college, my college coach, my last two years, Coach Latrell Scott. You know, we, <laughs> I can't say out loud what we used to call him as a coach, but you know, he was very direct. Like he was very, you know. He didn't sugarcoat anything. And, but one of the things he said very early on, and it stuck with me to this day because I use it with just anybody in life. And you can use this with anybody. If I critique you, especially in a coach player relationship, if I critique you, I'm critiquing your action, not you. If you, if you miss an assignment that we've ran over 30,000 times in film, talked about in practice and you go out in the game and blow it. And I say that was a stupid, you know, whatever move. The action in what you did was stupid, not you. And that's a, a lot of times coaches don't make that very clear. A lot of times coaches will attack you and not your action. And so a lot of times, especially when you're dealing with young kids, if you deal with that at home, if your parent, if you find your parents or your caregivers attacking each other and not the issue, you become right. to internalize that as well. So when a coach does that to you, you instantly shut down and you go into retreat mode or in self-preservation mode. Now, how that comes out in that athlete 
some kids will internalize that and take it out on the other players and, you know, whatever. And then you have some players who will just completely shut down and you instantly lose that player's talent. You, you rob that kid of their uh, confidence, of their trust, of their vulnerability to be able to trust you to put them in the best position to go out there and win and showcase their best talents. So I always tell people, if I critique you, if I offer some accountability in that moment, I'm critiquing the action and behavior, not you as the person. A lot of times, because one person shows a specific behavior or action in a moment, we'll sit there and say, well, that's who that person is. Right. You know, if I sit there and see you in a bad moment, you were having a bad day and I sit there and say, oh, well, that's who that person is. Yes, a first impression can go a long ways. But I think as adults, you know, is I think first impressions are kind of like a childlike mindset. Yes. Can somebody give you a very bad first impression and make you feel like, you know what? I'm good. Yes. I'm not saying that. But to instantly, even if you've had a good first impression and then the next time you meet them, it's bad. And you say, well, that's who that person is. We're so quick to sit there and see somebody in their bad moment and a vulnerable moment and say, well, no, that's who you truly are. You should know better. If you know better, you should do better. But we know that's not always reality. So I appreciate when a coach can critique the action and behavior and not make it personal, not make that kid. Because what good is it for me? Now, as a coach, I used to be hard on kids, but I used to be hard because if you tell me you want to go division one, if you tell me you want to be this great athlete, I know what it takes to get to that level. I know what the work you have to put in. And if I don't see you putting in that work or that effort, and I'll call you out on that because you've told me what your expectations are. You've told me what your goals are. So as a coach, it's my responsibility to put you in position to maximize your talent and put the resources and people around you to make sure that if that's your goal, well, you can't sit there and say it's because your coach didn't step up to the level and do his job to help you. Even though it's, it's not my job to get you to Division One, I, I can put you in position and give yourself the opportunity because it's all you need as an athlete is the opportunity to do that. But as I a think, coach, that's my responsibility. And, and that's where that respect comes in at. It's completely your responsibility. And I think there's three ways that we can actually, that coaches get to inspire regardless of the age, right? Ted, whether it's 8U, 9U, whether it's, you know, freshman and uh, freshman JV, whether it's freshman in, in college, whether it's first year in, in pros, whatever it is, I think that there's a way you get to do that. The first thing that you have to do is you have to establish trust by seeking consent and buy-in, right? Mm -hmm. So Juan, I, you, right, yeah, right you're, you're on the team. So the first thing I want to do is I want to establish, you know, that I want to establish that um, that I have your consent to challenge you if you feel like if I feel like you're you're not living up to your greatest potential. Are you open to that? Do I have your buy-in on that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so do I have your buy-in on that? And so it doesn't matter what the age of the kid is, but if you treat them with that level of respect, then they rise to that. But if you demean them and emasculate them and 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 and, and poke holes at them and and you know and and you know like you know demonize them then they will fall like well, you will lose that that kid's talent and, the, and that kid's confidence but i think the first thing that you do is you have to seek consent and buy-in the second thing that you have to do is establish rules of engagement and many coaches and many people don't understand how to establish rules of engagement they don't understand how to create operating standards communication standards for the people for, to, so that you can actually no environment is safe without rules of engagement if they're boundaries yeah, here's the thing. I I I I, I understand what boundaries are. I do not call them boundaries. Okay. And this is the reason why is that if you and me are in a situation where I feel like I need to draw a line, I'll draw a line. But principles 
have their own governance. If I am a principled man, then they, it's a, it gives you a door in, it gives, it gives me the ability to close the door. But if I only operate with boundaries that just keep people at bay, right? So I don't need a wall, I need a door. And so the principles of rules have door or doors. So now you can come in. I said, you can come into my house, right? Under these rules, right? And if you don't operate these rules, I'm gonna close the door, right? But it's not, but I, I don't, I don't, I, I, I just completely, I have this conversation constantly about boundaries. I believe that men operate in a principled way. And if I need to draw a line, I'll draw a line. I'll say, look, Ted, this is, this is a behavior pattern that I have seen witness. And I will, and this is the line that I am currently at. If I if I witness you stepping into this in this pattern of behavior, then this is what will happen as a result of you stepping in that pattern. Habitual line steppers. That's what we're trying to address, right? We're trying to address <laughs> habitual line steppers. <laughs> you know? can, I, yeah. can I offer a perspective on boundaries real quick? Because yeah, you, for you sure. made I, a... I want to offer one more, the last one real quick, and I want to go to that. Go ahead. So, so the so consent, buy-in, rules of engagement, and all leaders need. Feedback. Here's what to happen. Here's what does not happen with with youth coaches, especially. They think that because you're seven and eight years old, that you don't have fucking feelings and you don't deserve to say whether or not the coach is stepping up or shitting on himself. Mm-hmm. So they don't seek feedback. So they are a, basically it's a it's a it's a it's a fucking um uh, uh it's a it's a it's a communist regime. <laughs> Most coaches yeah, are operating as a communist yeah. regime. They're fucking Kim Jong Un. <laughs> you know, going out there talking, they don't want any feedback. They don't want the kids to give them any shit. So they just go, oh, well, you know, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Y'all, you're only seven or eight years old. So you, why do you have feelings? Why do you have a, something that you need? And they model that behavior. That's ineffective. So I'm asking all of the guys who are in leadership positions to rise in this, to be able to see consent and buy-in, set rules of engagement, and to seek feedback in a constructive way from your team to make sure that y'all are operating in the right, in the right way. I just wanted to say that before. Ryan. And they must have that within themselves first. Right. Yeah. They must right. have that within themselves first. So a couple of things that you were talking about before, talking about avoiding confrontation, <laughs> it comes to holding space, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if I don't have principles, how can I either draw the draw the line or open the door, right? If, right. I, if I don't have feedback for myself, right? You talked about something called feelings. Right. That's a that's a great feedback loop. But we avoid that confrontation. Mm. We avoid that confrontation within ourselves. So Ted says no to me. Right. A whole bunch of things comes up. I don't want I don't I don't want to deal with that with me. So I throw him away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just throw Uh. Ted because I don't want to deal with me. So I have to deal with me first. Have that confrontation with myself. Hold space with myself. Wow. Because like when when you were talking about before. We have a lot of we have a lot of males, right? Men in these body suits. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, I, I work on with my executives and entrepreneurs, right? It's like we're stuck, a lot of people are stuck in the timeline emotionally of where they were never able to release, right? Mm-hmm. They were never given that space to to be authentic. Yep. So if this happened at 15, this happened at seven, eight, I'm a 15-year-old, I'm an eight-year-old in a in a in a 40-year-old's body. Yep. And now I am clashing with my youth, with my youth athletes because I'm a, I'm a seven year old emotionally, <laughs> right? Because because yeah. I'm like I'm, I'm clashing with them. And exactly. one of the one of the big things is we don't we we suddenly see kids as people, mm-hmm. right? As as a as a person, as a sovereign person, 
And yes, they 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 need guidance. However, we don't have hold that space for us, and it, and it's embedded in our nervous system, like you talked about before, Sanika, the 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 genetics, right? If we don't influence that, and there's something called epigenetics, epi above genetics genes, right? Epigenetics, and what this tells us now is that you are in control how you feel and having and tapping into those feelings will change the way your genetic expression turns out. The genes are able to switch on and off, health or disease, right? Mm -hmm. And it comes from a big part of that comes from our consciousness, our ability to tap into that feeling. It washes over our nervous system and our genes. So it is not a static thing. It goes on from what we're talking about, from self-rejection, self-acceptance, all the way down to your biology and physiology. But we have to be able to hold the space. The, these, these coaches, these people, anybody that, that's listening, listening in, you must hold the space and have the confrontation with you first. Yeah. Then you're able to hold that space with your partner, <laughs> with your athlete, with whoever it might be, because you're stuck in that timeline. And we... Yeah. We need to dissolve that timeline and bring you here into your biggest manifestation expression of God through you, right? That's 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 it right there. Thank you for both. Of you. Thank you all both for sharing that. And I want and I want to tie in both 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 of the things you uh, both said real quick and offer my perspective on uh, boundaries as we get ready to wrap up. So saying you got, I definitely uh, feel what you said about boundaries. And if I could offer perspective, you know, to your point. You know, a principled man is somebody, in my opinion, a principled man is somebody who has the level of self-awareness about themselves to be able to know who they truly are. Yeah. You know, everybody can say they know who they are, but majority of adults have no idea who <clears throat> they truly are because like Juan said, they have not had those confrontations with themselves. Mm -hmm. Boundaries, I, the way I explain boundaries to people is that you put boundaries in place, not for the person, but for yourself, because you've identified that this person in your life at this point in time triggers something in you that you have not either addressed or to Juan's point, refuse to address and project their insecurities onto that person that's triggered it. So when I talk to people about boundaries, I say boundaries are for you because you have not addressed or healed this specific trigger yet. And if this person that you want to keep in your life continues to trigger that boundary, then it's on you to either heal it or remove that person if they continue to trigger that. But to uh -huh. your point, a principled man doesn't need boundaries because they live within their principles and they have a level of awareness about themselves that whoever comes into that space, they don't have to question or even think about, well, what can I get away with or what when I get away with this person? They've made that very clear in their tone, in their art, in their leadership and how they carry themselves. So I'm glad you said that. And I think that's a very great point. Boundaries are people who are in the process of healing. Principles are for people who are in the process of self-awareness. And I think that's a great way to tie up this conversation. As we wrap up, did any of you all want to share any final points before we get ready to wrap up? I'll just say this real quickly. Uh, for all the coaches out there and people in leadership and you have responsibility uh, for young minds and people, um, just a coach said something, and I, I'm going to tell you, it's an I'm 58 years old now. So I was playing football between 18 and 22. When I was 18 years old, I heard this statement made to a player and it still resonates and I see it like it was yesterday. A coach said to a player, you're a sorry example of a human being over a football game because he threw an interception. We lost the game. 
but I was an 18 year old impressionable young man. And at that time, I still remember that at 58. Now, what that did to that young man, it may, it may not have changed his life or whatever the case may be, but you don't know what you, when you say words to someone, how long they'll last in the mind of other people who hear them. So we have to be careful what we say. And if we're not building people up, uh, we, we shouldn't be in the profession of coaching or leading people because we, we're destroying them if we aren't in the right place of being able to help them. So I want to leave everybody with that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Say, and look, once again, oh, Juan, did you have anything? I'll just say, really piggyback off what Ted said. I always look at biomimicry, right? Looking at how nature intended to do some things, right? So we have our, we have our voice. For some reason, we have our voice in between our heart and our mind, right? Our heart and our brain. So the words that you use, it's let it connect first through your heart, mm -hmm. right? And come up so you can help with the expansion of someone else in the vicinity. And a lot of times we, we work off, we speak off the stories up here, of the, off the hurt. So when we allow it to go down and, and connect and then come out, things, beautiful things happen, magic happens. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, so I, that's what I just want to leave, leave off with. Yes, sir. I like that one. I like just, that one. I want to piggyback off what Juan just said and, and just see the sort of create a circle on this. Because Ted, I thought that point was powerful and Juan as well. Um, one of the first things that I tell anybody that I start working with is that under no circumstances are you required to respond immediately when anyone talks to you or asks you a question. Mm -hmm. Amen. That's true. That's it. That is never, absolutely never. true. You are never, you are never, you have never been operating under a contract where you need to immediately respond. And so you are more powerful in those moments. When I when I receive what Juan said, I I normally take anywhere from two to three, two to five seconds to process information. And then to give myself the awareness to be able to hear what's being spoken to me, to allow this and this to connect. And then to speak to life, what would be a value for the, for to, to would be a value in the conversation to create trust, to create safety, or to create forward progress and momentum to whatever the best degree I have the ability to do so. That's my intention in speaking. So many of us speak from the place of being heard and being seen because we never felt seen and heard. Mm -hmm. My offering is that is that in, that in the moments where you allow a one step to condition this to connect, you can take silence. You do not have to respond impulsively. And your impulsive response is disintegrating trust in your relationships and people's trust in your leadership at the same rate. Amen. I am cool. Man, thank y'all so much, man. Juan, Ted, Sanyika, thank you all so much for joining me on this beautiful Saturday. I hope everybody listening can take everything from this conversation and use that in their personal lives because I'm definitely running this conversation back. And uh, hey, Ted, I'm gonna review this like film and definitely jot down everything y'all said. Because man, I, I just really appreciate y'all's time. Thank you all so much. Our listeners out there, check back next week as we continue on. If not, well, y'all have a great rest of the day. We'll holler at y'all later. Thanks for having me. Thank you, brothers. Y'all have a great afternoon. You as well. Peace.